General H. Norman Schwarzkopf was Commander-in-Chief of Operation Desert Storm, and we are originating today from his hometown in Tampa, Florida. General Schwarzkopf attended the United States Military Academy at West Point and graduated near the top of his class. He served in Vietnam, where as a battalion commander, he led a panic-stricken company through a minefield to safety. General Schwarzkopf then went on to command troops at entry level and finally became commander of the United States Central Command. And after Saddam Hussein's army invaded Kuwait, he led 700,000 troops in an assault to liberate Kuwait. His troops stormed a victory quickly to end the Persian Gulf War. Let's join General Schwarzkopf now and the students today from Largo High School, H.B. Plant High School, and Countryside High School. General, as we observe the 50th anniversary of D-Day, let me take you back to that time. And if you were General Eisenhower as Commander-in-Chief of the Allied Expeditionary Force, and you were about to send your troops into, into the beaches and into Europe and into France to take on the German army head-on, what would these words be to the troops? What would you say? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I, when I look at D-Day, you recognize what an extraordinary man this fellow Eisenhower was, the pressures that he was under. Um, if you stop and think that uh, what would have happened if we had failed at D-Day? I mean, if we had failed at D-Day, uh, first of all, you know, the, we wouldn't have been able to do the invasion for at least another whole year. We would have lost so many landing craft and this sort of thing that, that the, the, the invasion would have been postponed for a whole year. It would have allowed Adolf Hitler to focus completely on the Eastern Front against the Russians and maybe hold them in such a way that he could come to an agreement or accommodation with them. You've got to remember that he had accommodation with the Russians, you know, early on when he started his conquests. Uh, another scenario could have been that because we had not been there, the Russians could have swept all across all of Europe and really taken over all of Europe under the communist powers. Uh, there was an election coming up. A fellow named Roosevelt might not have been re-elected as president to continue to give us the leadership that he had given us. And let's face it, the bottom line would have been that the next time we did the invasion, the person in charge wouldn't have been someone named Eisenhower. So all of these things could have happened if, if we had failed. A and yet, and, and I would go on to say that Eisenhower had many, many of the same problems that, that we had in the Gulf, only magnified tenfold. I mean, you know, when you look at some of the characters he had to deal with over there in this coalition warfare, you know, people who were supposedly our allies but gave him terrible headaches right before the invasion. A few that come to mind is, is de Gaulle, Montgomery, and I think when you see the story of D-Day, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Uh, he was under extraordinary pressure. And yet, yet you arrive at this moment when you have finally issued the orders to go. And, and I describe it as sort of, you know, throwing dice. You know, once the dice are in the air, there's nothing you can do to call them back after that. They're going to land and they're going to come up with a number. And you come to this time when the dice have been thrown, the die is cast, as the expression goes. And at that time, Eisenhower just went down to his troops and went around and, and, and patted them on the back and wished them good luck and told them to do their best and told them that he was going to do his best and, and said, you know, we'll make it together. It's sort of that moment when more than anything else, you derive great strength from your troops and you try and give strength to the troops just by being there, just by letting them know that you care. And Eisenhower certainly let his troops know that he cared right before the D-Day invasion. General, why was the D-Day invasion important to world history? Well, you have to understand that up until that time, uh, there had been a major battle on the Eastern Front of the Germans against the Soviets. And there had been a lot of battles down in North Africa, and there had been a lot of battles in, in Italy. 
But this was the time when the Western powers were literally striking directly towards the heart of Nazi Germany. The inter remember, remember the, the Allied powers, the British, had been kicked out of Western Europe. I mean, actually kicked out on Dunkirk and run off the beaches. And this was a time when forces were going to be reintroduced into Western Europe to open a second front and to thrust directly at the heart of Nazi Germany. Very, very important from not only a military standpoint, but a psychological standpoint, a signal to the world that this was the beginning of the end for Nazi Germany. General, can you tell me what it is that makes inexperienced, terrified troops, such as those in the D-Day invasion, go forward into combat? Yeah, two things. The first thing is their training. Uh, you have to remember that these troops just weren't plucked out of the hayfields of, of, uh, of uh, Nebraska and bingo sent to D-Day. They had been through a lot of training. They had worked with their soldiers, they had, their fellow soldiers. They had worked with their leaders. They had worked with their weapons. And, and this tends to give you confidence, you know, that you can do your job. But the other thing, more importantly, is the confidence they had in their buddies around them. The, the, the fellow on the left and these days the gal on your right. The fact that you have worked together and you're not going to let them down. It's called unit cohesion. I think you see it a lot of places. You see it on a football field. You see it in offices and organizations when they're faced with very big t tasks. People rise to extraordinary uh, measures. They do things that you don't expect them to do. And when you ask them, why did you do that? It really is because, not because they have any great dedication to anything. It's more at that moment when somebody's shooting at you or when you're really in the thick of things, they don't want to let down the members of their team that they have sort of gone through all this training with before. So I'd say two things. Number one, confidence, confidence as a result of the training that they have received before that. And secondly, this wonderful thing called unit cohesion where they don't want to let down the folks in their, in their outfit. General, what would have happened if the D-Day invasion had <coughs> failed? Well, as I said, first of all, we would have had a lot of casualties. You know, they, they literally would have been thrown back into the sea. Secondly, a lot of people don't realize this, but, but one of the reasons why the D-Day invasion was delayed, originally it was supposed to go in the early spring, and then it was delayed back to, to, to the, the beginning of June, or the end of May, early May, and then the beginning of June. But one of the reasons why it was delayed is because there was a real shortage of landing craft. Uh, we had gone into Anzio, and the Anzio invasion was still going on at that time, and the troops were still stuck on the beaches of Anzio and having to be resupplied with these landing craft down there, which everybody thought would be available for D-Day. So, so they had to delay D-Day until they had another month's production of landing craft. Just, uh, it's amazing when you think how close we were to not being able to do this. So they, they produced all these landing craft. Well, D-Day, if D-Day had failed, we would have lost all those landing craft and we wouldn't have been able to go again for a year. So really what happened was had D-Day failed, we would not have been able to reinvade Western Europe for one complete year. General, let me ask you a question about, General Eisenhower was successful on D-Day and throughout Europe, I, I'm sure you'll agree, with his ability to bring so many different countries together to work toward a common goal. Uh, a lot has been written about both his personality as well as his ability and a lot too has been said about your ability and your personality. His, his troops knew him as Ike, your troops knew you as the bear. Tell me how much personality plays in the business of command decision making, and, and particularly in reference to General Eisenhower, how much did it play in his ability to bring so many different countries together? Yeah, uh, 
I, personality, we, we all have a personality and we all have an identity. And, and the interesting part about it is there's no single identity that describes what it takes to be a leader. I mean, if you go back and study the leaders of World War II, you have two prime examples. On one extreme, you have George Patton, who was flamboyant and loud and pearl-handled pistols and, and profane, you know, and, and constantly getting in trouble all over the place. And he was, in fact, a very successful leader and, for the most part, very much admired by his troops. As a matter of fact, it's amazing. Today, most veterans of World War II that I run into love to say, I served under Patton. They couldn't possibly have all served under Patton. But they all like to say, I was with Georgie Patton as we went roaring across Europe, you know. But on the other hand, you have a fellow named Omar Bradley. And Omar Bradley was soft-spoken, was a total gentleman, but was again known as the soldier's soldier. So you have these two entirely different personalities, each one of them capitalizing on their particular personality to lead people uh, in battle the way they could best do it. Now, you get back to a fellow named Eisenhower. A lot of people don't know this about General Eisenhower. But General Eisenhower graduated from West Point in 1915. And when World War I rolled around in 1917, all sorts of other people went marching off to war in World War I, and Eisenhower was considered so valuable as a trainer of the new tank forces that he was kept back in Pennsylvania to train the tank forces that were sent over to World War I. So Eisenhower had never seen a shot fired in anger. In 1942, he is sent to England. Now think about this. The British generals that he was working with had all fought for four years in World War I. And then they had already fought in Europe, and lost, by the way, but they'd already fought in Europe in World War II. And this fellow comes walking over there and eventually becomes a supreme Allied commander who has never seen a shot fired in anger. Amazing. Imagine walking into that environment and saying, okay, I'm in charge here. Everybody's going to say, what, how come you're in charge, you know? Of course not. That's the amazing thing about this man. And yet it very quickly became apparent to the people that were working with him that this man was a brilliant planner, that he was a superb diplomat, that he had that capability of just working the problem and working the problem and bringing everybody together. And you know, if, if you look at some of the things poor General Eisenhower to put, had to put up with, the day he had to make the decision as to go, to go on D-Day or not, the weather was terrible, he'd already postponed it one day, he was getting all these weather reports, all this pressure was on him. He even wrote out a message that day that he was going to release if the invasion had failed. And yet at the same time, we had some, some people, well, I'll tell you, history records it. Charles de Gaulle comes running in and is all upset that, number one, he finds out that, that money has been issued, uh, French money has been issued to the troops. And he said, I didn't give authority for the French money to be issued to the troops. How come you let that happen? Well, he raised all sorts of cane about that. Then they took him out to Eisenhower. Churchill brought him out to Eisenhower's headquarters to appease him. They started briefing de Gaulle on, on, the, on the invasion plans. And de Gaulle said, my goodness, you know, it looks like you're invading France. You're taking over France. You're not there to liberate France. And he raised all sorts of cane about that. Why didn't you consult with me on this plan and get my input? Then Eisenhower takes him out into the garden to kind of walk around with him and calm him down. And one of the things Eisenhower did was said, here, I want you to see the speech that I'm going to issue when the troops invade on D-Day. De Gaulle read the speech and was furious. You know why? Because he wasn't mentioned in the speech. How come you didn't mention me in the speech? Now here's this poor man Eisenhower who's faced with this weather decision as to whether we go or don't go, uh, you know, has all the pressures of the invasion on his shoulders, and he's got to put up with this guy who's upset because his name's not in his speech. 
And they even then turned to the Gaul and said, and oh, by the way, here's a speech we want you to read. You know, it's not that we're not mentioning you. We have a special position for you, and we want you to read this speech to the French people when we invaded. And de Gaulle was so furious, he ripped it up and said, I refuse to read that speech. Eventually, he did read something similar to it. But all this, right, I mean, right on the eve of having to make this decision. And yet a guy like Eisenhower, who, by the way, was known to have a violent temper and did have a violent temper, at that particular point was able to control it and to conjole and to, and to mollify and to bring it all together. So, so this thing about personality is we all have our own personalities and you're not going to change. As much as you might try to be different, if you try and be different you'll be a phony and the troops see through it in a heartbeat. The troops can pick up a phony in a minute. So don't just be yourself. Be yourself and that's what he was. He, he was himself, Georgie Patton was himself, Omar Bradley was himself. And each one of them were fantastic leaders in the role that they played, yet all of them had entirely different personalities.